the optimal life. Steve, welcome. Hello, Nate. Thank you for having me on. This is your first podcast appearance ever. I'm very honored. Oh, well, I am too. I hope it goes well. <laughs> I think it will. I think we'll have some fun here, and I think we'll bring some value to people and hear your story and talk about, of course, your book. It, it uh, It's an inside job, kid. Uh, we'll get to all that. So take us back. Uh, looking at your history, it looks like your your alcohol and drug abuse may have started at a young age. Take us back. When did that begin and why? Okay, well, uh, in my book, as I, I pretty much started the same way, I uh, I grew up in a large family, and my my father was Italian, my mother was Irish, and they always said that wasn't such a great mix, but they survived it. But uh, our upbringing was a little rough. My father, um, he he had a rough upbringing, and I think you know that kind of thing is passed down, and uh, you know there was a lot of emotional and physical abuse that went on. And uh, I think uh, the way my mother dealt with it was she wasn't a, a, what I would call a a big drinker, but um, she would, you know, get together with my aunt and they would have a couple of beers on Friday nights and just talk about things in general, life, uh, anecdotes that they had and uh, just stories. And I used to sit around and listen to that. And I watched her deal with, uh, which now when I look back, she was dealing with her, uh, life with my father and, you know, she, she got loose on the weekends. Uh, she wasn't a drunk. She didn't, she, she was a, she was a happy person when she was drinking, but I picked up on that at an early age. And, uh, when I went through my issues, um, emotionally dealing with all that was going on with them and, and in our house, uh, I turned to alcohol and, uh, my friends in the neighborhood I lived in, it was kind of a rough neighborhood and, and they, they pretty much did the same thing. Um, they liked to drink. Uh, I got around that crowd that they enjoyed drinking and, uh, and getting into trouble and doing things we shouldn't do. And, and how old just, were you at this point, Steve? Uh, I was, uh, it probably started about 12, 13 years old when I okay. first drank. And you started getting drunk at, at that age. You, you, the first time you did it, the second time you're going, it's getting more and more. Was it getting more intense every single time? How did that well, evolve? It, 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 it started out slow. I, I think there, the opportunities that came up, uh, running into uh, kids a little older than us that invited, invited us to you know, have a beer or drink or smoke a joint. Uh, it happened maybe every weekend, if not every other weekend, uh, and just, you know, the behavior of, uh, um, you know, acting stupid and, uh, you know, yeah, you think about our brains at 13 years old, Steve, and it's just, our brains aren't done forming till we're mid twenties and we're sitting there. You're at 13 years old with your buddies completely manipulating and changing the brain's functionality and doing damage to it at such a young age, you don't realize what you're getting yourself into, but you're starting right. to go down a dangerous path at that young age. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Uh, being in places I shouldn't be being around people I shouldn't have hung around with learning things I shouldn't have been learning at that age. Um, 
whether it had to do with sex or whatever it was, it was not an appropriate time to be finding out certain things. And uh, I think that um, for me, it was, uh, uh, it was survival. It was, you know, so I didn't think I was crazy seeing the things that I went on that went on in my parents' house. Uh, one of the first memories I had was uh, uh, my father uh, on top of my mother and choking her on the kitchen floor and things like that to have to, to make sense of, to reconcile was pretty difficult because my older brothers, nobody, nobody talked about it uh, after these incidences. You just, you know, moved on, so to speak. Now, when you saw that happening in real time, do you believe to yourself that this is just normal? No, I didn't think it was normal. It was very shocking to me. I remember being really angry with my father and even having that emotional urge of wanting to kill him for, for hurting my mother. How old were you at that point? I think I was probably about, I want to say, seven or eight years old. Mm, okay. Oh, wait, no, no, I take that back. I was older. <laughs> the stories kind of run into each other. No, we had moved into the house that dad had. I was 10 years old. You were 10 years old. So you knew yeah. that enraged you seeing that behavior. You knew that that was wrong. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, some kids grow up in these environments. They don't know anything else. They're getting whipped. They're getting chained. They're getting this and that. And to them, that's just normal. Right. And and for me, uh, I, I guess when they talk about uh, the cycle continuing, when, when your kids see that, they carry on that same behavior when they get older. For me, um, and I, I believe maybe my brothers too, but for me, I can't speak for them. I, I thought to myself ever since then, I never want to see that happen to anyone. I, you know, it was so painful emotionally to, to watch that, that I thought, you know, I, I couldn't, for one, I couldn't do that to another person and knowing how it made others feel, but to do that to that person themselves, I mean, it was, it was violence and I, it affected me in a way that, um, you know, I, I've been married, I was married once for 20 years, and uh, I've never laid a hand on a woman that way in my life, you know, so in that way, it affected me in a, I suppose, in a positive way. Sure, right, you take the good and the, and the bad from what you see from your parents, and you choose what you want to do with your uh, adult life, so right. You, right. you could choose to be like them, or you could choose to be the opposite of them, and it cho right. you chose the opposite, at least in that regard. Did you ever confront your father? Uh Confront him about those issues or confront him one-on-one? -on -one? Uh, either or, about either the, well, the, the abuse or the way you felt about him overall. Well, I loved him, and I, I was with him uh, not when he died because I lived in uh, I live in uh, Colorado, and he they're up in New York. But um, I forgave him. I, I, I was able to forgive him. And uh, there's parts of my book that explain some of that process. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can relate one, one, one story where uh, I was probably probably about 14 years old and we were at the dinner table. And it was just my younger sister and brother, my older brothers that all had left. And uh, as usual, it was kind of a usual thing for them to get in a, a debate or a, a shouting match with each other at the dinner table. At that moment, Something struck me and I spoke up, which was unheard of in, to my father. 
And I said, could we please just not argue at the dinner table anymore? And after I said that, I, I kind of looked at everybody. I looked at my brother and sister, and they kind of kept looking at their plate. My mother was looking at me like, what? What are you thinking? <laughs> right. And I looked at my father, and he gave me one of those three-second stares. And uh, I just thought, uh-oh. And he didn't say anything. He went back to eating. He finished his meal, put his dishes in the dishwasher, and went upstairs. And I thought, wow, I guess I dodged a bullet, but at least they understand how it makes me feel. And uh, so I walk upstairs, and I'm walking into my uh, bedroom. And as soon as I opened up my door, my father was in there. As soon as the door opened, he went right for my throat and started choking me. Mm. And for some reason, I don't know, it was like my older brother materialized out of nowhere. And he separated us and, and said, sent me downstairs. I don't know what he said to my father, but um, uh, that was pretty much, I was scared to death of my father mm -hmm. for a long time. And uh, that was kind of the stuff that went on in our home. Yeah. So, um, how, how just, old were you when you forgave him when before he passed on? Well, before it was the year. Uh, well, I had forgiven several times. It just wasn't one particular time. I, I learned, I think, over time to forgive when you could come to that place. Okay. And the first time I, uh, I think I had forgiven him for, for a lot of things. And he was getting older. He was almost 50. In my mind, when I was 21, yeah. he was getting older. And I decided, you know, I want to tell my dad I love him, you know, just to let him know. Maybe he was never told that by his father. So um, I, I, it was a kind of an idyllic scene where uh, it was my first year working in corrections. And uh, he helped me get a car. He signed for me. And we were in an apple orchard. And uh, I said, well, this is probably the best time to tell him. He'd asked me to come pick apples with him. Uh, very complex man. Um, but uh, he was up in the tree and uh, he asked me to hold on to his leg so he didn't slip off a branch. And I was holding the bag and I said, uh, hey, dad, I got to tell you something. And he said, yeah, what's that? And I said, well, I just wanted to let you know I love you, dad. And the response I got kind of shocked me. And he said, well, I'd be surprised if you didn't. And that was the end of the conversation. Yeah. You know, when you say complex, Steve, you're I think what you're saying is that on one hand, you had this man that was capable of tremendous violence and anger. And on another hand, you have this man that's looking to do to bond and do the simple things in life with his kids, like pick apples with me, those kind of things. So is that what you yeah. mean by complex? Yeah, he's yes. The, yeah. Yeah. You, you nailed it, because. Uh, I, I said to my mother once, I said, you know, and a lot of my problems were I wasn't connected with my father. I didn't have that guidance. There was another time when I had just gotten out of the Navy and I was kind of floundering and he pulled me aside one day and he said, uh, listen, he says, you're not very smart. You won't amount to much. So take the prison guard test. It's good benefits, good pay. And you find yourself an apartment and get moving. Mm. And that was something that I, you know, he said, I guess the same thing to my older brothers, but me, I believed it. Right. And taking on that belief that that continued my descent into drinking and, and drugs. And I wanted to connect with my father. And I just it, it just wasn't to be my mother said, as I was going to say earlier, uh, he does. He, he doesn't tell you he loves you. He, he shows you. 
he couldn't. And I needed the verbalization. So it was, you know, I, I'm not going to blame it all on my father. I had my own issues uh, that I needed to work through, too. So, But, but the being able to forgive and not carry that resentment. Resentment eats away the insides. Your ability to forgive and move forward had to be a tremendous weight lifted off of your shoulders, even if it didn't happen overnight. Yeah, no, it didn't. I think a lot of that from going to AA and uh, counseling, um, finding a spiritual path for me, uh, helped me get to that point. Um, you know, doing a lot of reading, trying to understand myself, uh, like the name of the uh, book, uh, it's an inside job, kid. That, that came from uh, an old timer in AA who pulled me aside one time when I was struggling. And uh, I just remember him saying that to me. And so I think that was the beginning of my journey to go inside and, you know, what's my part in this? I had to find out what my part was in all this. Mm. And is that what the preface, is that the, what the book is about? It's about looking inward? Yeah, well, it, it I have a lot of anecdotes in there and stories that, you know, brought me to the point where I was abusing all that stuff. I, I, I didn't know how to to manage it. And uh, I think near the end of the, the book, you'll, you'll see where I started going inside and um, started listening and keeping my mouth shut. I, I was so always talking and never listening. And, and, and that's what changed it. And that's where the title came from. And I think uh, in the big picture, that's what I had to do was uh, understand how it was an inside job. And that mm -hmm. sent me on a, a journey of just self-discovery, you know. So I think I, in your teenage years, what ends up happening? You you were abusing drugs, alcohol. Do you find yourself homeless at some point? Um, no, I... I I came close. I mean, there were some apartments that uh, uh, I stayed at, and, and then I had trouble uh, finding uh, another apartment when uh, uh, I needed to move. Um, I, it's there's so much that's not in that book, mm -hmm. as much as there's in that book of my life. But I didn't. I, I came close a couple of times uh, uh, after I, I left corrections after three years because I I had su suffered trauma. The, the last year I was in it and I thought I got to get out of here. You I suffered trauma because of the work at the prison or in your personal life? Work at the prison. What was and the in my personal life? Sure. Yeah. So it was a mix of things. You couldn't get away from it at home. You had it. And then you go to work, you have it. It's like you're, you're, you don't know what to do, but what, right. was the, what was the trauma that you experienced in the prison? Was it uh, other prisoners abusing you, abusing each other? Was there sexual abuse inside? Oh. What goes on? It was it was both as far as abuse of me or, or the, the fear that I had. Uh, uh, I was not uh, I was not meant for that job, and I, I found out a little too late, I guess. But uh, there were uh, uh, some stabbings, and there's one particular stabbing that happened, and there was a lot of blood, and uh, it uh, I couldn't talk about it without crying. I mean, the PTSD. Uh, it that affected me to the point where you know I had to go. We had to go to court. The the, the guy that that uh, the young kid uh, was uh, found guilty of attempted murder, and I had to go in trials a witness and relive it all again. And, oh, that had to be very uh, anxiety ridden for you. Yeah, it was. It was. And then there was another point where uh, watching another inmate, uh, another young guy, 
um, he had swung a uh, mop ringer at one of the officers at the facility I was at. Well, this kid was going to have to pay the price. And I, I still, um, I still have the image of them dragging him down to the, the box, to the SHU special housing unit and him crying for his mama. He was crying. He's like, mama, mama, I want my mama. And that's just like, what is it? Wow. And they'd invited me into, uh, I don't know why this happened because it's not a norm. Uh, another officer and I happened to be passing by the doorway and the officer that opened the door to bring this inmate in with four other officers dragging him in there. Uh, he said, you guys want to come in? And we looked at each other and I thought, well, okay, all right, let's see what this is about. And as soon as we got in there, they locked the door and they, they just beat the hell out of this kid. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it was, it was like, like I, it said, I, the only thing I could relate it to was um, a shark frenzy. I mean, uh, they were just pummeling this kid. And at one point, the officer, the fourth officer, went to take a swing of the kid. And uh, we were standing behind them. And he missed. And his fist came about that close to my face. And uh, he did a roundhouse. And I'm going, geez. And... Uh, I, I thought, you know, let's let us out. I, 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 we, we, neither one of us, we saw this and he said, can you let us out? We didn't want to see any more of that. And, uh, well, what, which let me goes, you, me, pardon? Yeah. Let me, let me interject real quick and, and just get an idea, understand it. So you, you were in, in this prison system, the corrections officer, you did that for several years. 19 not years. a good thing. Not a good thing. Cause you're dealing with your own mental health issues. And now you're going into a place that has even more, violence it's dark it's disturbed it's that kind of atmosphere so you're not helping yourself when did your mental health really hit rock bottom when when was the mental illness at an all-time high for you well I, I could say there had been different points i mean when i was in the service when i was in the navy there that's when it really kind of showed showed itself but i believe um how did it show itself steve uh, in, in the service? Yes. Well, and, and this is me. Uh, I, had, to make a long story short there, they, I had picked uh, uh, a corpsman. I, I dreamed of being a corpsman. My brother was a surgeon. He was a, he was a, a vascular surgeon. And, you know, he'd tell me stories and it was what I wanted. I, I wanted to do that. And uh, they told me because I admitted that I tried marijuana they told me they had put me on a waiver and I couldn't get the old GI bill, which paid for your school, gave you loans and all that. He said, pick another job. I picked another job. Uh, I ended up on an aircraft carrier and uh, they told me uh, I was having trouble before that being late, getting in fights. And they told me, you know, let, let, let us help you out. What do you really want to do? And I said, I want to be a corpsman. So we'd signed a contract. And uh, once I got on the ship and did my temporary duty assignment. Uh, they said I could start working in sick bay. Well, I'd taken the test, showed that I could do the work. And uh, the day that I was able to go into sick bay to work, I approached uh, the, the petty officer that I had previously spoke to with my uh, um, other petty uh, chief petty officer that hooked me up with this job. And I said, when can I start? And he says, well, you got in a fight, which I did. I was protecting myself. 
And I wasn't written up for it because the guy I was a bully and the, the senior chief had told me, don't let it happen again. Maybe this guy learned his lesson. So it was in self-defense. But he said, you were in a fight. There's no friggin' way you're going to work in my department. And I shut down. I went into a deep depression. One of the things I talk about in my book is I never pursued it. I never questioned it. And I just gave up. I quit. I gave up. And I, you know, that's how I ended up uh, getting out of the Navy after that, which I did receive a, an honorable discharge, by the way. Looking but, back at that moment, Steve, what would you have done different if you can do it over again? I would have I would have inquired. I would have went to my uh, uh, department head and said, you know, this is what happened. I said, is this can they do this? Um, I would have pursued it. I would have been an advocate for myself. But, you know, when I think about how I was raised in my family, I, you didn't talk back. You didn't question anything. I think that behavior carried on through a lot of my life where, you know, I was afraid of authority figures. You know, sure. Long time. So mm -hmm. that makes sense. But that, that makes sense. yeah, that, yeah, that was my first thing uh, into uh, mental, my mental issues. And then I think after I went to, I was working in a work camp upstate New York and uh, I had had a problem with one of the other officers who was in the, it was union business. And there was a, there was a, a, a difference of opinion about something. And this guy was upset and uh, he said, what are you going to do about it? Because I was vice president of the union at the time. And I said, just file a grievance. The same thing he used to tell me when he was in uh, correction or in, in the union. And one thing led to another. This guy followed me back home from work and he tried to run me off the road. Mm. Then during that period, my brother, Mike, uh, who lived down in Queens and uh, New York City, down in Woodside, he contracted AIDS. And uh, when he died, uh, that was probably where it really got bad for me. I couldn't handle it. I, you know, he, he and I had just begun to start getting close to each other. And uh, when that happened, I, I got in a fight with an officer. I assaulted another officer. And, uh, you know, I, I had to be pulled off. I was so angry. That, that's, uh, that's in the book. That, that story explains how that happened. But uh, I was approached by a lieutenant who said, you know, we're going to have to put you back on uh, time abuse. You need to get some help. I went in to see a doctor. He prescribed me Prozac. Uh, that didn't work. I ended up uh, over time. It just got worse. And I was mixing alcohol with the the prescription medications I was taking. Um, I I had, uh, well, let's just say in the book, it explains what happened. I was uh, admitted uh I voluntarily admitted myself into a mental uh, facility, hygiene facility, and uh, had some treatments done there. I had shock mm. treatments. So. Yeah, talk talk to us about that electroconvulsive therapy, i.e., shock therapy. Yeah. Why do they do that? Why do they administer that? How do they come to the conclusion that they're going to administer that? And what is that supposed to do for you? Well, um, the 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 um, doctor who would been treating me, uh, giving me medications. The medications wasn't the medications weren't working, and not only that, I didn't tell them I was using alcohol at the same time. That's a no no, you know. And uh, I didn't care. I was I was I was feeling desperate. Uh, I, I wanted to forget and drown in my sorrows and the whole bit. Uh, 
the the doctor had said earlier when I first started being treated by him, he had mentioned, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, he had mentioned uh, ECT. And I said, there's no way. I remember watching one flow of the cuckoo's nest. And I'm like, I don't want that. I don't think so. But it got to the point where I was uh, desperate. I, I said, I, I got to do something because uh, I'm having suicidal thoughts, ideations. I've got two little girls. I'm married. I've got a family. I, I, I needed to do something. So I asked him again about the ECT and he, he went through and explained what, what happened, you know, and uh, I thought, well, let's, let's, let's do it. I, I I'm ready. Um, they uh, uh, put you into a room with a gurney and, you know, I, after I was admitted, uh, there was a specialist there uh, that uh, administered it and, it was, it wasn't a, I won't, I won't say it was a bad experience. I'd say it was more of a, a frightening experience because of the unknown. But uh, I remember walking into the room and uh, I, I looked around and you see in all these pieces of machinery, electronics and things. And the one thing that always stuck out, it still sticks out today is the mouthpiece. It was the same mouthpiece that Jack Nicholson had had in his mouth. And it was just kind of a, it, it, it was a frightening to see it, you know, and it's mm -hmm. like, well, I know what comes after that, but uh, so they, what do they, they do? They, they, they strap you down to a table. No, they don't strap you down. No, okay. because they'll get, they give you a muscle relaxant and, and they, uh, 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 there's the other item there that they, they give you the, the muscle relaxant and the, uh, uh, trank. I think it's a mild tranquilizer. So are you just lay, laying in like a hospital bed? Are you sitting in a chair? Yeah. It was on a gurney. It was on a gurney and it was all, um, uh, uh, what's the word? Sanitary. Everything was mm -hmm. clean. Right. It was, you know, it was as pleasant a surroundings as you can get in that situation. And it, um, they, they put a heart monitor, they put the things on your chest and, uh, they put, uh, now, I didn't see this part because I was already under, but they, they put induction gel. I can feel the, the nurse putting the induction gel on my temples. And they said, okay, Stephen, and they let the drip go and count ahead, count backwards. And uh, next thing I know, I wake up. And that's all I remember of it. But they put about 120 volts, I guess, that they put through uh, 800 milliamps, whatever. How, how long does that procedure last for? Um, it's, it's very short. I, I, I mean, they do it, I think within, uh, you know, five to 10 minutes, uh, then it takes another, maybe five, 10 minutes for you to come out of it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then yeah, you come out of it. What, what is the, the therapy supposed to accomplish? It's, it's supposed to, uh, eliminate, um, you know, illogical thinking, it, it, you know, it kind of, you know, when you're in the state you are before you get that um, treatment, you know, you're 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 ruminating about things. You're thinking about things. Your 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 anxiety's ramped up. Your 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 and or your depression is in there so far. You don't talk. You're you know, it's it's hard to it's hard for me to go back and with those memories about what it was like. And uh, uh, but um, it coming out of it, it it. it you feel calmer, you feel more at peace. I guess that's the only thing that I can describe it with is it, it, it rids you of the last 
couple of months up to six months, six months memory things of that were bothering you, I guess. Um, it didn't, uh, it didn't take away your long-term memory. It was more geared towards short-term memory, you know, because you're, yeah. So did the suicide ideations that did lessen, it kind of felt yeah. less intense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So you come in. I just want, I, I'm sorry, I, I just want to interject and say that that is in, in conjunction with continuing therapy. You know, you, you're still going to see the counselor and you're still going to see the, the psychiatrist to adjust medications, but, you know, it's in conjunction with other things, you know. How do you, what do you attribute your recovery to? I mean, you've gone through a lot in your life. You, you, you're in that dark place. You get the shock therapy. You're in these mental health facilities. You've got two daughters. Where do you start? How do you start turning this thing around? Well, it didn't end there, unfortunately, because uh, once I moved back to my hometown in upstate uh, New York uh, uh, in Elmira, um, I left corrections. I, I finally quit. There was an incident that happened and I said, that's it. I'm done. So moving back with my wife and uh, girls, uh, I was back in my hometown where I hadn't lived in probably eight to 10 years. I'm thinking, let's see, uh, 1988. Uh, yeah, close to close to 10 years. And what happened was I started getting depressed again and the medication wasn't helping so much because I was also drinking, started drinking at the time. I started using cocaine, started puffing on a joint and it, you know, now, are you off. mindful enough? Bar. Are you mindful enough to realize in that moment, oh gosh, here I go again? Are yeah, you, are, you were. Yeah, but I didn't care because I was uh, I was not providing for my family. I didn't have a job. I was now labeled as uh, disabled because the state gave me disability retirement because I was um, diagnosed with PTSD and bipolar illness. So. Um, I was in the dumps. That was another low point. And the drinking ramped up. But uh, to get to your question, Nate, uh, I finally got to a point where I was sitting in the bar one day, one evening. It was a Super Bowl Sunday in 2005. And I remember sitting at the bar and I'm looking around and uh, I thought I looked at my Michelob and thought, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And a lot of stuff happened between the point I left uh, up, uh, my job and when I returned to Elmira, a lot of not good things. So I went home. I What do you think it was, Steve, in that moment on that Sunday, 15, uh, 18 years ago? What do yeah. you think it was on that Sunday where you just have a Michelob in front of you and you finally say, this is it? Something just came up. I, well, I looked, everybody was partying and having a good time. And it was just something entered me. I don't, you know, if you want to call it divine intervention, something, I don't know. I, I can't put a label on what it, what to call it. But the, the bigger point of this is when I went home, I went to bed, I woke up the next morning and I had this, you know, lonely feeling. What am I going to do now? How am I going to do this? I stopped going to AA and uh, I thought I can do this though. I can do this. I don't need anybody. I can do it. Um, I happened to get on the computer, my computer, and I was looking at stuff and I saw the newspaper laying right next to my computer and I picked it up and I was just reading the help wanted ads. 
for work. And I saw this, it was a novena. I don't know if you, you know what those novenas are. They put a prayer in there. You say it nine times or five times and your, your wishes will come true. Okay. <laughs> so I was desperate and I thought, well, what, what the hell have I got to lose? You know? So I, st- I said the prayer and I don't know what it was. I can't remember what it was, but I said it just as they had told me to. in in that 10 minutes that I was doing all this, And at the end of the novena, it says, you'll receive a phone call within three minutes. And they said, oh, okay. All right, let's let's check this out. You know, obviously I was skeptical, but I I said, what have I got to lose? So I sat there and, uh, you know, a minute goes by, two minutes. I said, what am I doing? What am I doing? And it's just coming up on three minutes, maybe about 10 seconds left. Can't can't explain this, but the phone rang. And I go, no, you got to be kidding me. I picked up the receiver back before we were using very many cell phones at the time. But I picked up the receiver and I put it to my ear and I said, hello. And I thought, well, maybe it's my sister or my mother. And I said, hello, hello. No answer on the other end. I thought, hello, nothing. I hung the phone up and I said, Jesus, God, this isn't a sign. I went into my room. I took all my medications. I was taking about five psychotropic medications at the time. Didn't have any beer in the refrigerator because if I didn't have any beer, I wouldn't drink it. But I'd go down to the bar and drink it. (laughs) So I dumped all those pills. Uh, uh, About a week or two after that, I quit smoking. Did this all in one fell swoop. Started walking every day. Three days or Three miles a day I got up to. And I was at, uh, uh, before that happened, I was at, I was, had a job that I had quit. I was working at the Radio Shack. And an old fellow from uh, AA came in. And I hadn't been to meetings in quite a while. And he said, Steve, come on back. We need you. We need you. And my ego, that's all it had to hear. Mm-hmm. My ego, that's all it had to hear. And I thought, well, you know what? That was another sign. So these things, these incidences happened that led up to this. And I don't know if you subconsciously put yourself into these situations, but uh, that phone call turned everything around for me. And I well, can't when that phone rang, that must have sent chills down your spine. And yeah, it had to be so crazy. It was. It was. I, I. I'm thinking, no, this can't be. I mean, is there really is is God at work here? Is a, is the universe? conspiring yeah. to help me i mean your yeah. heart had to skip a beat and i mean that's wild you're going this is a well, jungle two minutes and 58 seconds and then ding, ding, ding and you're like holy cow yeah well it the sounds thing, like go ahead go ahead no, I'm so, well i was going to say there was a, a, another one of those moments um uh, a couple of months after that happened uh i wasn't going to meetings but i wasn't drinking i wasn't smoking but uh i think the 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 cessation of me using all that medication and drinking and everything affected me in a, a very negative way. I should have contacted a doctor, and I want to strongly note that you don't do that stuff because it's just you're 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 really taking a chance doing that kind of thing. But uh, I went back into a deep depression. I mean, a very serious depression. And uh, I don't know. If, I don't want to share that story. That's in the book. I'd rather have people read that. Sure. Um, It just uh, sounds like those, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it just sounds like you were sick of being sick. 
And something inside of you said, I can't do this anymore. Whether that was divine intervention, spiritual, God, the universe, all of the, everything. Something well, you nailed it. Yeah, you nailed it. It's It was sick and tired of be, being sick and tired. And of course, you hear that a lot in, uh, around the AA tables. But uh, yeah, yeah, that, it was sick. I can't do this anymore. It just, I, I had to think about my family and my kids too. Sure. But just to know, you can't do it for them. You have to do it for yourself. You have mm. to get well for yourself. You have to want to get better. Would you have been able to do this alone or no. is AA pivotal? Uh, I think, well, let me just say that AA, I've been going to AA since 1984 when corrections made me go or I was out the door. That, that, that was my two choices. Either you go or you're done. Um, and going to AA, uh, it, it did help. Absolutely. It, 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 it put me in touch with people who had been there. Um, it's, uh, uh, no, you can't do it alone. Mm -hmm. you, you can't do I prove that I prove that because uh, what happened in those last months be, after I got sober in those first few months I got sober I almost uh, it was almost over for me real had quick I, Steve because we're running a little on. we're running a little short here and I want to finish it up with a couple things real quick yeah. where's your mom at is your mom still alive no my mom passed away in 2007 okay and in she was a big part of that she was she was a big part of me staying sober she was. And when your father passed away, what year? He passed away in 2020. He just, 2019, I'm sorry, 2019. Oh, 2019. Okay. So he was around to see your recovery. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. He he was around. And uh, what do you think your mom would say seeing you today versus where you were 20 years ago? Well, that's a good question. I would like to think that uh, she would be very proud. Uh she used to talk about how proud she was that I hadn't drank. I mean, it was three years of being sober and clean. And it's like she could relate to it because she used that as a crutch dealing with my father, you know, living with that. And seven kids in the family. I still mm. can't put, wrap my mind around people, parents who, who can raise seven kids. I raised right. two and it was like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, the book is called It's an Inside Job Kid. Talk to us briefly. We have talked about it, but give us the elevator pitch. If somebody is comes up to you and says, Steve, what's this book about? Who's the audience that should be consuming this, et cetera? What, what do you say? Well, I would say it's family members. It's the the person themselves uh, who's going through any uh, addictions or having mental illness, um, uh, who's suffered trauma. Um, the point, I, I mean, there's a lot of things to the book. I mean, I, I use a lot of stories. And, you know, my first time writing it, it's, you know, I did the best I could. And basically, it's letting other people know, don't be afraid to seek help. Uh, don't be afraid. You're never alone. And, and, and my sharing my story and some of the dumb stuff that I did and some of the foolish things, that there's, there's never anything too crazy that people would turn you away because they, they think it's disgusting or whatever. People will be there to help you and don't be afraid. And I've got a lot of numbers in there uh, to, to look up to uh, if, you, if you need help. And uh, it's for the addict. It's, it's for, for the alcoholic. It's for the one who suffered trauma. Um, and it's again, it's just to let them know they're not alone. They're sure. never alone. Mm, beautiful stuff. And we'll make sure we link it in the show notes. It's an inside job, kid. 
Hey, uh, Steve, thank you so much for being vulnerable today and sharing this incredible insight. Well, thank you, Nate. I, I really appreciate appreciate you having me on your show. And I've listened to your show. I love your show. I've listened to some of the people on there. And it's great. you got a lot of great guests on there.